0: For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, Revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. I want to remind you that as we've come to this part of the book of Romans, we've had 11 chapters that began the book that were telling us the big, beautiful, glorious doctrinal truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ, starting with the reality of human depravity, that everybody is born under sin, and rebelling against God and that we have no hope for our sin except for the fact that Jesus came in the flesh out of love for us, unexplainable, unimaginable love to die on the cross for sinners, to save us from our sins, to be the propitiation for our sins so that we could be saved, not on the basis of being a good person, which we could never do, but on the basis of Jesus' righteousness by faith alone, in Christ alone. And these doctrinal truths have led up to the praise of God at the end of chapter 11. And now, beginning at chapter 12, he's telling us, if you have believed these things, if you are new in Christ, then here's how to live as a new creature in Christ. And that's kind of where we are. And, and just to remind you, the beginning of chapter 12 said, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So as we continue into chapter 13, this is still part of the explanation of here is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Here is part of what it looks like to live as somebody whose mind has been transformed and who is giving their bodies as a living sacrifice, and what he's going to tell us today is that part of what that looks like is to recognize that the human authorities that God has put in place over us in this life are there by the decree of God, and that it is a God-honoring thing to submit to the authorities that God has put over us. That is part of what it looks like to give yourself as a living sacrifice in worship to God. This text that we just read, Romans 13, 1 through 7. It's a simple, straightforward passage. It's one of those passages that means exactly what it sounds like it means. But because there is always such a tendency in the human heart to rebel against authority, it's a passage that often gets reinterpreted. It's one of those places in the Bible where you can find all kinds of people who have come up with all kinds of ways to say, this actually, if you really knew Greek, it really means the opposite. Of what it seems to be saying. But I'm going to just tell you that's not the case. It means very straightforwardly exactly what it says. But I want to tell you, as we're talking about the relationship between Christians and government authorities, I have to just tell you up front that I am biased. I am biased in favor of the United States of America. I think we're in a good country. In fact, I think we're in the best country that the world has ever seen. I think we have the best Constitutional system. I think the Declaration of Independence lays out some of the best ideals that the country has has continued to seek to live up to over time. And I think that God has providentially blessed this country in ways that we don't even realize, not just in the form of government, but also in the background of our culture that makes this form of government feasible for us, where it's been tried in other places around the world and failed miserably because they didn't have the same kind of background that we have had. So I I I know that I am biased in favor of the United States of America, but we can't come to this passage and interpret it in a way where it would only that interpretation would only work in the United States of America. Because there's been an awful lot of other countries where Christians have lived and continue to live throughout the ages. And so we have to keep that in mind, and in fact, this was written to a church that was in the middle of imperial Rome under the rule of Nero, who was not that moral. So we have to remember that, and another thing that we need to remember as it's just a principle of interpretation, not just for here, but for everywhere in our Bibles, is that we can't interpret Scripture based on our experiences. We have to interpret our experiences based on Scripture. We don't look and say, that scripture doesn't seem to match what I experience, and so I'm going to find a way to make it say something different. We say, no, I must have misunderstood what I experienced. That's the general principle that we need to go by, is the authority of scripture, not the authority of our experience. Now, it's understandable, too, because some of the—why we would have that that temptation to want to reinterpret this passage based on our experience, because— in recent years, we've seen an awful lot of stuff to get accepted by our government leaders that is pretty horrible. I mean, just pretty horrible. And sort of reflects the spirit of this age. Uh, I think the spirit of this age is, is summed up in Second 2 Peter 2.10, where we're warned about those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. That really is kind of the spirit of the age right now, isn't it? What is your defiling passion? Well, express it. Indulge yourself. Be yourself. Make others celebrate that. Indulge it. What about authority? Oh, down with authority. Down with authority. And we as Christians, we look at certain kinds of, of expressions of that rebellion against authority in America and around the world, and we say, boy, that's horrible. But then at the same time, we also find that, that tendency in our own hearts, too to say, but my situation, when the authorities are doing what I don't like, now I get to despise authority. Boy, it's hard, isn't it? And we see the authorities themselves doing all kinds of of things, not all of them by God's grace, but we see lots of leaders in our country and even in our community who are are committed to the lust of defiling passion and, and they're so committed to it that they think that the killing of defenseless unborn babies is an act of justice. Because because by doing that, they can let more people indulge the lusts of their flesh without consequence. It's very backwards. And we have leaders in government positions who promote the defiling lust of the flesh and same-sex marriage and all kinds of sexual immorality and rebellion against the distinction between men and women that God has built into creation that ought to be obvious to everybody. And we even have those who are in positions of authority who still try to despise authority and try to latch onto that spirit of the age. You even hear things like United States senators saying we are going to go after the elites. And I always wonder, who are the elites if United States senators are not the elites? I don't know. But they they're trying to say let's stir up these things and these feelings. Well, as Christians, when we look at that and we, we see all that, we wonder, well, what are we supposed to do here so it 's understandable for us to come to a passage like this and say, "Surely it must not mean what it sounds like it means, especially when you combine all that with what happened with all the difficulties of the covid situation, which caused all kinds of controversies and difficulties in pretty much every church in America as all kinds of people were having all kinds of opinions, not just about the virus, but about how churches should deal with the government orders dealing with the virus. And in light of that, all kinds of reinterpretations of this passage came up. But I want to submit to you that God hasn't been caught off guard by the current events of America. Whether it's COVID, whether it's the government, whether it's the popularity of the defiling lusts of the flesh, all of these things are not caught off guard this scripture is here. Psalm one, nineteen, verse eighty-nine says, "Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens." And this is part of why it's it's so good for us to be not just to say yes, we believe that the Bible is true, but also to be grounded in some confessions of the faith of of church history. Because you could say to yourself, "Of course, I submit to the scriptures," but This passage actually means the opposite of what it looks like. Well, we're not the first people ever to read the Bible. We're not the first people ever to have the Holy Spirit. We're not the first people ever to have the ability to wisely interpret the scriptures. There's been many who've come before us and passed down these interpretations that are very good, that we need to pay careful attention to. So for example, in this church, we have a statement of faith that's called the New Hampshire Confession of 1853. And there is a paragraph in that statement of faith, paragraph 16, on the civil government. And it's essentially an interpretation of Romans 13:1 through 7. And here's what we have said together that we believe as a church. It says, we believe that civil government is of divine appointment for the interests and good order of human society, and that magistrates, that means government authorities, people in positions of leadership in the government, are to be prayed for, conscientiously honored, and obeyed, except only in the things opposed to the will of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the only Lord of the conscience and the prince of the kings of the earth. Or another, another document that I hold dear, and that I know that many of you hold dear as well, is the Second uh, London Baptist Confession of Faith, of 1689 which I should actually say was we call it 1689 because that was the year of the act of toleration meaning that was the year when in England they stopped persecuting Baptists. It was actually written in 1677 when the persecution of Baptists was very strong but here's what they said in that interpretation of Romans 13. They said God the supreme Lord and King of all the world "...has ordained civil magistrates to be under him, over the people, for his own glory and for the public good. And to this end, he has armed them with the power of the sword, for defense and encouragement of them that do good, and for the punishment of evildoers." It goes on to say that it is lawful for Christians to accept the office of a magistrate. And it goes on to say that civil magistrates, being set up by God for the ends aforesaid, Subjection in all lawful things commanded by them ought to be yielded by us in the Lord, meaning we ought to obey those that God has put in positions of authority unless we would have to disobey Christ to do that. Now, those confessions get their interpretation of Romans 13 right, and it is very straightforward, but we need to know up front, even before we start getting into these particulars of Romans 13, that Jesus is Lord of all. Did you know that? We say that all the time, right? I mean, that's part of just sort of the essential confession of faith when you come to know Jesus, is that we declare Jesus is Lord. But Jesus is actually Lord over everything. So when we talk about Romans 13 and the fact that God puts government authorities in place, we are in no way saying that they usurp the lordship of Jesus. Here's what it says in Colossians chapter 1. Verse 16, it says, For by him, that's by Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent." You know there is absolutely nothing that exists for any ultimate reason other than the preeminence of Christ. And that includes you and me and time and space and history and stuff and governments and businesses and families and everything. It exists because Jesus is the creator and is the Lord over all things and is the one who will be preeminent in everything. So he is Lord of all. He's going to come and exercise his lordship over everything in person one day. Revelation 19 talks about that. This return of Christ, it says, From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread at the winepress with the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, listen to his name, king of kings and lord of lords but it's not just that he's going to come and reign in person he already is reigning over everything the bible tells us both of those things ephesians 1 verse 20 says that god raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to, who? To the church. Praise God for that. It doesn't say that he gave him his head over all things to the family. He doesn't say that he gave him his head over all things to business. He doesn't say that he gave him his head over all things to the government. He says he gave him his head over all things to The church, which tells us right there that we need to have our priorities straight when we're thinking about the institutions that Jesus has made in this world that he uses to rule over us. God has instituted the family as sort of the most fundamental institution of human society, He's instituted business as the most prosperous institution of human society, He's instituted government as the most Worldly powerful institution of human society, but Jesus has instituted the church as the highest, most glorious institution of human society. You know what the church is? It's despised by the world, thought of as nothing. The gates of hell seek to prevail against it every day, but Jesus is going to build his church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. And what he's made is he has made the church to be and when I say the church, I mean every gospel-preaching, believing church across the world, to be an embassy of the kingdom of heaven on earth. Yes, the, the, the kings of this earth rule in all kinds of ways, in power, but Jesus is given, the Lord of all, given to the church. We, we get to be this, this outpost of a kingdom that is not of this world, which is what Jesus said. Jesus said to Pilate as he was on trial, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. Judas expected Jesus' kingdom to be of this world. And when he realized that that's not what Jesus is going for, that's when he decided to betray him. But we get to be an outpost as the church of the kingdom that is not of this world, speaking the truth of the lordship of Jesus Christ to every institution and every individual around us. It is an amazing thing that we get to be part of the lordship of Christ, not by saying we're going to take over the government and make a Christian revolution, but instead by saying we are going to make disciples of all nations not discipling the nations in terms of teaching every government that they ought to be following the civil laws of Old Testament Testament Israel, but in terms of going to the individuals and winning them to Christ so that we can baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, these institutions that Jesus has set up, that's part of how he exercises his lordship. He's given families to exercise his lordship in the home and over the raising of children. He's given businesses to exercise his lordship in organizing things in a way they are going to be worldly prosperous toward those that benefit from, from that business. He has, has organized governments, and we'll talk about that. That's what this is all about, for our good and for the peace and order of society. And he's organized the church as the highest, most glorious institution that there is. Now, there's all kinds of movements that try to mix these institutions up together. There, there are movements that come from, from secularism that would say, well, if we're really going to have everybody benefit the most, then we need to make the government and business and family and church all into one institution. That's what socialism is. and. It has been tried, and it doesn't work. There's also those from from the, the Christian side, though, who would say, well, if we really want everything in this world to, to function as it ought to, then we need to bring those institutions together. We need the church to come in and to take over the government. This has been tried. This has been tried in the old state churches of Europe. And you look there, and you say, did they bring about the kingdom of God on earth? Certainly not. It's been tried in the old social gospel of the American progressive era of 100 years ago. It's being tried in the new bump in popularity of theonomy. And if you don't know what that is, that is fine. And all of those movements have come uh, on this misconception that the church's job is to bring about the reign of Christ by seizing government power. And any time in history that, that there's been a emerging a, a of the government and the church, the intention of the church is always to, to use the government's policy to influence the world and, and to sanctify the world, but the effect is the opposite. The effect is that the government ends up controlling the church. And we Baptists almost always end up having to run for our lives when that happens. Guys, the church's mission is not to disciple the nations by pouring its efforts into non-church institutions like the government. The church's job is to be an embassy on earth of the kingdom of heaven, to make disciples of individuals, to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ, to be salt and light in this world that is depraved. But at the same time, in all of this, We need to recognize God has set up governments under the lordship of Christ that are part of the way that he wants us as individuals to obey Jesus. Romans 13 has traditionally been seen by reformed Protestants as an extension of the fifth commandment. Do you know what the fifth commandment is? It's this, honor your father and your mother that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God gives you. Now you say, why, why would this have anything to do with honoring my father and my mother? Well, it's because all across the New Testament, there are these, these lists of commands that have to do not just with honoring father and mother, but extending that out to honoring and obeying all of the people that God puts in our lives as authority figures over us. That children are to obey their parents, that servants are to obey their masters, that citizens or even not just citizens but subjects, as Paul was a citizen but not everybody got to be a citizen, are are to obey those government leaders that are put over them. The Westminster Larger Catechism says, who are meant by father and mother in the fifth commandment? And the answer is by father and mother in the fifth commandment are meant not only natural parents but all superiors in age and gifts and especially such as by God's ordinance are over us in place of authority, whether in family, church, or commonwealth, meaning in government. So I I will say, when guys, when the whole COVID thing was raging and everybody was wondering, what do we do with all these government orders? And it was so hard to sift through. I had, I, I don't know how many times, probably at least a couple dozen times, people say, how should we take Romans 13? How should we understand Romans 13 when we feel like the government is overreaching and my answer was always, if you want to know how to understand Romans 13, don't do it in the moment. Don't do it in your experience of what you want to do right now. Go back to something like the Westminster Larger Catechism, and boy, they, they, did, they, had a, they did a good job. They did a good job, all right? But should we talk about this passage I apologize for such a, a long time getting into it, but Jesus is Lord over all these things. As I said, it is pretty straightforward, but let's see in this passage, Romans 13, starting in verse one, what is God's will, first of all, for human governments? The first thing we see here is that government institutions exist because God is the one that raised them up. So it says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, which we'll, we'll get to actually in point two, because we're going to ask what is the responsibility of Christians in this. But it says, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. See, what's going on there is is he's saying that it's not just the individuals who are government leaders that have been put in their place by providence, but it's also the whole system that's in place. And this is something that is always going to be there. Anytime there's a gathering of human beings together into some kind of a society, there's going to be some sort of a government that's over them. It just happens. Whether it's the mafia or somebody else, somebody is going to take control. And it's by God's grace when that system is a good system and an orderly system. But this tells us that whatever is the system that's over a particular society, it's there because God decided it would be there. Now, it may be a system that is incredibly difficult to operate under, or maybe a system that, as I said, I think our system in this country is the best one that there is. But either way, it's in place because God decided that that system would be in place. So in America, we have uh, our highest authority is the Constitution. Our highest authority is not an individual. Our highest authority is the Constitution. And the founders set things up so that no one man and no one branch of government can can take us down a path of tyranny and there's all kinds of means of checks and balances and ways of removing bad leaders and changing bad policies and and not just within the federal government but 50 different state governments as well, right? And so that's the system that we have and when we see that as Americans, we can look at Romans 13.1 and we can say that constitution and that system is there because God decided it would be there. Saying that is not saying that the Constitution is infallible. It's not saying that the American system is some sort of a perfection of human government. It's just saying, this is the system God gave us. If we were living in France, we could say, I don't think this system's quite as good. But it's the system God gave us. If we were living in Korea, we could say, different system, but it's the system God gave here. The point here is God's providence God directs the circumstances of mankind in each country, each society, as he sees fit. Sometimes those systems are for judgment. Sometimes those systems are for the benefit of people. But God is the one who put them in place. Not just the systems, but the leaders within those systems are placed by God. If you look at verse 2, it says, it says that these authorities exist from God... And whoever resists authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. It also goes down in verse 6 to say that these authorities are ministers of God. You know, this, this ranges all the way from you know high-up leaders like a president, all the way down to local enforcers of the law like the police officer who pulls up behind you with his lights on. And what you can say is, you know what, I don't, I don't necessarily know the heart of this person. God knows the heart of this person. I might not know anything about this police officer who's pulling me over. I might know him really personally. I don't know. I might know all about his business. But the fact that God has put him in a position of authority means that God is using his authority as an authority over me for my good, as an extension of God's rule in my life. That's the way that this teaches us to take this. God put them in place. John 19, verses 10 and 11, when when Jesus was on trial before Pilate, Pilate was getting frustrated that Jesus remained silent for so long and said, Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Now, Jesus doesn't say, therefore, I cast off your authority. No, he says, you do have authority in this situation, but you need to recognize that it was given from above. Now, Christians, if you decide to run for office, that's good. Okay? If you can do that with integrity, If you can do that with an attitude of serving the Lord and doing what is right in your personal life and how you go about it and how you're going to carry out that office, that is a beautiful and a good thing. But no leader ought to ever think, I am a leader in this position because I am just so great. This is an instruction, not just for how we as Christians should view our leaders, but also for leaders to see You're only in place because Jesus, the Lord, decided that you could be for a little while. Jesus is Lord over all of these leaders. Now, as Christians, do we look at these leaders and do we say, well, I can identify this one who is not doing a good job. I can identify this one who is personally immoral, and so therefore I can ignore their authority or even it's questionable how this guy got into his office, and so I can ignore his authority. Well, I love what John Calvin says about this. He says, The Apostle Paul intended by the word governing authority to take away the frivolous curiosity of men who are prone often to inquire by what right they who rule have obtained their authority. But it ought to be enough for us that they do rule and that they have not ascended by their own power into this high station but have been placed there by the Lord's hand. And by mentioning every soul, that's the very beginning of the passage, let every person be subject. He he says, uh, he removes every exception, lest anyone should claim an immunity from the common duty of obedience. I'll just quote one more great reformed guy, Charles Hodge. He says, it was to Paul a matter of little importance. Uh, It was to Paul a matter of little importance whether uh, the emperor was appointed by the senate, the army, or the people, whether the assumption of the imperial authority by Caesar was just or unjust, or whether his successors had a legitimate claim to the throne or not. It was his object to lay down the simple principle that magistrates are to be obeyed. He got it right. That's what it says. It's just simply what it says. God uses them. What else does he do? Why has he instituted them? Well, he uses these government authorities to approve what is good, and to punish what is evil. That's both his design, that's an instruction for those authorities, but also what we who are under their leadership need to recognize this is for our good. In verse 3 he says that they're not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. That's the idea. There needs to be something in place so that the depravity of human beings doesn't just cause terror to reign free. There have to be authorities in place to make those who would do what is evil scared to do what is evil. That's a good thing from God. It says, do what is good and you will receive his approval for he is God's servant for your good. Saying, look, God put these government systems and government authorities in place because anarchy stinks. You know, you, you, you think that, well, government is terrible, Go try Somalia. See how that works out for you. It is a grace of God for there to be those who are keeping peace and making order. And he says, if you don't want to be scared of the authorities, then be about what is good in your life. He also says of these authorities in verse 4 that he does not bear the sword in vain. And by the sword there, he's talking about the ability to punish crimes and probably the ability all the way up to punish Uh, murder with the death penalty. This, This verse is not teaching that every murderer necessarily has to receive the death penalty, just like in the Old Testament when it gave the sentences for various crimes. Those were not mandatory sentences. Those were maximum sentences, but it is giving that power into the hand of the state to say God has given the power of the sword to governments. Remember how it said in the last passage that we read, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, to leave it to the wrath of God. On an eternal level, we're leaving it up to the vengeance and the um, the justice of God. On a worldly level, God has put government authorities in place to punish what is evil. It says in Romans thirteen six, the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. They don't know necessarily. Some do, but they don't all know that they're ministers of God. They don't necessarily acknowledge that God put them in the position that they're in, but God is saying, they're only there because I decided that they would be there and for the purposes that I have for them. And the purpose, my design for them, is according to 1 Peter two fourteen says saying the same thing that this says here in Romans 13, that they are sent by God to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Right? So God put these systems and these people in place, to promote good and to punish evil. Now the question sometimes comes up, should we legislate morality? Usually when, when Christians mean that, when Christians say that with, you know, with an honest uh, question, what they're, what they're asking is, can we change people's hearts with laws? And the answer is no, you can't change people's hearts with laws, but every law is a legislation of morality. It may be the wrong morality, but every law is a statement of here is what is good and here is what is evil. And, and the Bible explicitly says that this is the purpose of government, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. So if you ever wonder, well, should we really have a law against that sin? Probably yes, we should. <laughs> because that's God's design for governments is to punish evil And to praise what's good. Now sometimes leaders get that morality mixed up. Sometimes they get that morality twisted. Sometimes Christians even say government leaders can't possibly know what is good and evil. Unless we have explained every law in the scripture to them. Romans 2 says the opposite. It says for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires. They are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Guys, it's, it's part of what God has written on every human heart. This, by the way, is in every reformed confession of faith as well, that God not only gave the Ten Commandments, but wrote something of what good and evil is on Adam's conscience and on every other human's conscience after that, so that, you know what? Those leaders who were there, they may never have heard a Bible verse in their life, but every single one of them knows that murder is wrong. Every single one of them knows that there has to be some sort of a system of, of telling the truth and contracts, et cetera, et cetera, that there has to be some kind of a good that they know to enforce. And of course, it is beautiful if we can tell them more clearly, here is what the Scripture says. You know, just like John the Baptist, he He got in trouble. He got arrested. Why did he get arrested? Because he was telling Herod, you have a relationship with a woman that you ought not to be having. He didn't recognize that. He needed to hear that from John the Baptist, even though his conscience had already convicted him. And it's good for us to do that, but they know those things. All that is just to say, hey, the government is there for our good. May not always necessarily work out perfectly, but it's instituted to promote good and to punish evil. So what do we do as Christian citizens? When you see those lights behind you in your car, you stomp the gas. No. No, that's not what you do. What it says is this. We are to be subject to governing authorities. It says in Romans 13:1: let every person be subject to the governing authorities, Romans 13.2, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. There is an erroneous teaching floating around that will tell you that Romans 13.1 is not about being subject to governing authorities, but that it's about being subject to people who are in authority who have a high moral standing. This is a twisting of the words of Scripture. It's not a new twisting, but it is a twisting. Charles Hodge said of that teaching, "...it is a very unnatural interpretation which makes this word refer to the character of the magistrates, as though the sense were, be subject to good magistrates. This is contrary to the usage of the term and inconsistent with the context. Obedience is not enjoined on the ground of the personal merit of those in authority, but on the ground of their official station." In other words, you don't get to say, "...but that cop is bad." And therefore, I don't have to pull over. <laughs> and you don't get to say, but that president is personally immoral, and therefore, his signing of this law is invalid. We, we have to recognize the authorities that God has put in place. This is what it says. We're to be subject to their authority. We are to conscientiously obey. It says in verse 3, rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. He's saying, essentially, if you're constantly going around wondering, am I going to be in trouble with the government? In most circumstances, the reason is because you're doing what you ought not to be doing. And God has put those leaders in place as part of the, the grace that he's going to show to you to show you you shouldn't be living that way. And so if we don't want to be in fear of them, then we should just generally do what is right but he also says in, in, uh, in verse 5, one must be in subjection. That means we put ourselves under that authority, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. He says, look, they are put there so that they can punish evildoers, and we don't want to get punished. But also, there needs to be an act of conscience in this. When he says an act of conscience, you know what that means? Part of the way that you serve God from the heart is to obey the authority figures that God put in your life. And when you say to those authority figures, England does just fine driving on the left, I'm gonna drive on the left. You might, might manage not to hit another car, but it ought to be on your conscience that you have disobeyed God. In disobeying the authorities, even though there's not a Bible verse that says drive on the right. He's put those authorities in place on purpose for us. So we are to obey. And not just for not getting punished, but for our conscience. Now, does that mean, though, that we obey if they tell us to sin? I just want to say here, duh. No. If if somebody tells you to sin, it doesn't matter who they are. You don't sin. If somebody tells you to disobey Jesus, you just remember Jesus is Lord of me and Jesus is Lord of him. Jesus is Lord of all and I'm going to obey Jesus. That's part of what it means here when it says not only to avoid wrath but also for the sake of conscience. Conscience. When, When Martin Luther was preaching the gospel and the gospel of justification by faith alone was incredibly frustrating to the Roman Catholic Church. And so he got put on trial. And at this point in his life, he was still trying to remain within the Catholic Church, still trying to remain under the authority of the Pope, which was all mixed up with the authority of the state at the time, too. He got put on trial at a place called the Diet of Worms. And he was, he was asked to renounce multiple of the books that he had written, that were preaching the gospel. And you know what? He took time to pray about it, to say, God, the authorities over me are telling me that I'm wrong. I need to take a break and consider, are they right? But do you know what he did? He searched the scriptures. He was led by the Spirit. He had a conscientious conviction. No, this is what the scripture teaches And so he stood the next day at the Diet of Worms and said to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand, I can do no other. And when the government tells us to go against what God has commanded, when the government tells us to go against our conscience before the Lord, we have to say the same thing. To go against conscience is neither right or safe. Here I stand, I can do no other. When when we're commanded... To disobey Christ, then disobedience to the government becomes service to the Lord. There was an example of this in Acts 5, where the, the authorities said to the apostles, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name of Jesus, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. Or Daniel. When he was commanded not to pray to anything other than the king for 30 days, do you know what he did? He threw threw open his second floor window where everybody could see him and bowed down toward Jerusalem and prayed to the Lord right in front of everybody. He got thrown in the lion's den for it too. Thank God he rescued him. But you know what? If we're commanded to disobey, we have to obey God rather than men. But do you know what our our heart tendency is? Our heart tendency is to say, I will take my stand and say, here I stand, I will do no other, because I think that guy is not a very good leader. Or I will say, here I stand, I can do no other, because I think the law he made is silly. That is not a reason to disobey. We are to be in subjection not only because of the wrath of God, but for conscience's sake, unless we're commanded to disobey the Lord. I'll give you just one example of this, all right? In 2020, do you guys remember 2020? So March, uh, I think March 15th, 2020, was the first Sunday that we didn't meet together. We didn't get to have church. And um, that, ah, boy, that stank, all right? And that time, Nobody knew what was going on. Nobody understood. There's some people who are like, oh, well, any church that closed its doors ever just needs to go and learn from John MacArthur. you know what John MacArthur's church did? They closed their doors because nobody knew what was going on. And and we had a prayer list that had deaths on it where the, the list of deaths was three times longer than it had ever been. So what were what we going to do? Well, guys, we we closed down, but we... You know what, 12 weeks later, the government was still saying, you may not meet together. And then that Saturday had a group of something like a 1,000 people downtown meeting together for a protest, and the mayor and the police out there with them. And that was the moment when I as a pastor said, I'm calling the mayor, and I'm calling the police chief, and I'm telling them that we're meeting tomorrow because they've just demonstrated that they don't believe what they're saying. And so I called them. I wasn't just going to say, we're, you know, in your face, we spit at you. <laughs> but I called them and I said, Mr. Mayor, we're going to meet. We saw, we saw the pictures on Facebook, what you guys were doing today. We can do that too. I, I called the police chief and said, we're going to do this. And the police chief told me, still against the law in the state, so if anybody complains, we're going to come shut you down tomorrow. I didn't tell you guys that, but he told me that. But we met. Now, by God's grace, there was actually only one week that we met when we technically weren't supposed to. <laughs> but we just saw it had become apparent that we were being commanded not to come together as a church when that wasn't the right command. And so there are times when we have to go with the Lord and not with the government. But those times are rare, and we shouldn't take those things lightly. Another thing that it tells us is to pay your taxes and pay your respect. This is pretty straightforward. Verse 6, because of this you also pay taxes. Because of what? Because they're maintaining order and peace in the world around us, and we need them to do those jobs. We need that to be funded. Now, do taxes ever get wasted and used in wrong ways? Absolutely. Did the Roman government ever tax in the wrong ways and waste those funds on what ought not to be done? Absolutely. And that's why it was such a supposedly trick question when they came up to Jesus and said, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? But you know what Jesus said? He looked at that coin with Caesar's face on it and said, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. And render unto God what is God's. And we may be frustrated at our tax bill. But the Bible says right here, pay your taxes. Pay to all what is owed them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Which is probably talking about not taxes, but where we owe money to others. Who may not be in authority over us, but we still owe that money. Respect to whom respect is owed. Where we are to have this this respectful attitude toward the people in positions over us, not because they are respectable in themselves, but because we respect the position God has put them in. And then honor to whom honor is owed, which is saying also other people who are not in positions of authority over you. Honor them in the proper, appropriate ways. Now I want to close with what, what we have on the, the list there is some random questions, right? I'll just try to get a few of these random questions out of the way because in a a sermon on the role of of Christians in the government, you know I, I think a lot of us are tempted to just talk through every political issue that there is, and that's not healthy that's not healthy that's getting entangled in civilian affairs as as the apostle Paul puts it it's It's not the direction that we're to be orienting ourselves as a church you know, to to just be Completely caught up in politics. That's just simply never what the commands or the examples of the New Testament show that a church and its leaders ought to be doing. But we do have a few things we want to know. First is this: should Christians vote? I would say the answer is yes. You should vote. Because that's one of the ways in our system that God has set up where we can have a real voice and make a real difference and what's going on with our leadership. Where it says that we have to be subject to the governing authorities, those that are already under us, does that mean that we can only vote for the people who are already in positions of leadership, that we can only vote for incumbents? No, that's not what it means. Because God hasn't only put the people there, he's also put the system there, and that system includes the ability to remove people and replace them. Do, do, here's a question, what if a ruler... Where a government leader is generally bad. There's been a lot. <laughs> you can't list them all. Well, I, I heard one Christian leader address this by saying, well, in the context where this was written, when Paul wrote the letter to the Romans, sure, Nero was emperor, but near, the exact quote was, Nero didn't start off all that bad. <laughs> And I just, I looked it up, and I found out, yeah, at this point, when the letter to the Romans was written, Nero had only murdered his stepbrother. It was going to be a whole other year before he murdered his mother, and, and it was going to be, you know, another, another 10 years before he started the mass murder of Christians. Guys, Paul knew what was going on. The Holy Spirit God knew what was going on. This is not something that is obey your leaders if they're doing kind of a good job like Nero kind of was. No. This is saying, respect the position that they've been in. Subject yourselves to them unless it requires disobeying Christ. What if a ruler is looking to exercise authority in places he's not supposed to? What if a government wants to interfere in families and in churches, for example? Well, that's not appropriate. He needs to remain in the sphere that he has. But at the same time, you know what? What? If you have crimes going on in your home, the government needs to intervene. If there are crimes going on in the church, the government needs to intervene. That is within their purview. But the government can't tell us, hey, here is an extra song that you ought to add to your worship service this week. We're not going to do that. Can we, when can we disobey? Well, when we're commanded not to obey Christ. When can we revolt? That's a hard question. Should the American Revolution have happened? Probably yes, but guys, we're not going to get into that because I'm just not a very good historian. (laughs) But I'll just say that that even in situations like that, it still needs to be under the leadership of government leaders. You know, if we we were to get a tax bill from Canada... And Canada was going to say, hey, we're going to, we're going to send the British Army. If you don't pay our tax bill, we'd probably revolt again. <laughs> but all of that just, you know what, there's a there's hundred questions you could go to. But I, I, want, I want us to, to just recognize together in our hearts, the more questions that we want to come up with for reasons why we don't have to submit to the authority that God has placed over us, that might just be a reflection that you are in rebellion against the authority of God. Don't do that. Submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, first and foremost, who is the Lord of the conscience and the Lord of not just governments and families and churches and institutions, but the Lord of you and your soul. Repent of your sins. Believe in him. Know that he is the risen Lord of all things but also recognize that part of the way that he leads you in this life is by graciously giving you leaders to obey. Let's pray. Father, thank you for what you have have done for us in Christ. Lord, we were, were born into a state of sin and rebellion against you. We were born in love, not just with the passions of the flesh, but with despising authority. And God, we thank you for forgiving us of that sin. We thank you for redeeming us by faith in Jesus Christ. For those who aren't yet saved of those things, I pray that you turn them to the grace of Christ. God, I pray that you would help us as those who do know you to continue to be sanctified, not just in our personal lives, but also recognizing the authorities that God has put over us and submitting to them as to the Lord. Father, I pray that when there are situations where we need to disobey out of obedience to Christ, that you would give us the courage to stand firm and to do that. Lord, even as, as it's said of many in the book of Revelation, that they conquered by the blood of the Lamb, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Lord, would you make us more than conquerors as we stand firm in the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.